about the song before I was about to get up. So whether it was here or at like some school chapel or at another church. Um, so when I knew there was about five to four minutes left until it was time for me to get up, I would be over, overcome by this intense desire, this kind of little voice would come into my mind, to stand up and to leave. To just get up and walk out. And what is he going to do about it? They're going to grab you and throw you up on the stage, okay? They'll, of course, there'll be consequences later to deal with, but for that moment, right? Just get up and leave. You don't have to deal with it. Um, and it was kind of this like overwhelming nervousness that would hit. And really about five minutes beforehand, you just kind of had to work through it and get up there and go. And that's my advice for a lot of people who start speaking. They, they're dealing with that nervousness. I'm like, all right, it's going to hit. And there's going to be this point where it's at its peak. And then everything you need is going to be screaming, just to leave. No one's going to stop you. Just get up, quietly leave the sanctuary. When it comes time for them to speak, they'll be looking around like, oh, I guess, I don't know, where are they? What's, what's happened here? You can come up with an excuse later, all right? There's lots of different things to choose from. Wasn't feeling well. was nauseous. Uh, all kinds of different things. I was talking to, to someone this week, and they, were, they had a public speaking engagement in front of them. And they were super, super nervous about it. And as we were talking, I was kind of joshing with them, teasing them a little bit about it. Like, imagining with them all the bad things that could happen when they got up and started talking. Yeah, what if you embarrassed yourself? That'd be really bad. I mean, everyone's kind of watching you. What if you passed out? Like, all these different things. And they, uh, they were like, this is not funny, Mike. This is not, this, you're amused by this. I'm not as amused. Uh, there's like, it's, it's so easy to you to get up and to speak. And I was like, well, hold on here. All right, it's become easier to me because over time, lots of repetitions, things like that. But at the beginning, I was really nervous. I've been diagnosed with panic disorder. So literally, I mean, the way my brain is set up is to have panic attacks, uh, which is not typically what you think of in someone who's going to put themselves in these nerve-wracking kind of situations um, over time. But what happened is, as as God was calling me and giving me kind of a vocation and kind of a mission, uh, part of that I sensed was that to be kind of the Christian leader he had called me to be, it would involve some public speaking. And so it was, you know, you kind of had to get over some of that that nervousness, some of those fears, and you just kind of had to do it. And again, with the more reps you get, I mean, yeah, today I really don't kind of get nervous for it. It just kind of happens. It's kind of almost a part of who I am, almost my nature. But it's, it's really important to notice it's my second nature. I mean, it's a nature that has become my nature. It wasn't there originally. And how did it become that? Through repetition, through practice, through habitual disciplining uh, of who I was and what I was thinking and how I was doing things. And that is what we would call virtue, okay? And so we're in this series on virtue, on thinking through how it is that you and I have our character transformed, shaped, reformed into who we are supposed to be as Christian people. And what we have um, tried to, to start looking through, um, through the scriptures, is this idea of virtue, beginning with this guy named Aristotle, a couple hundred years before the time of Jesus. He was thinking through, how do people's character, how does that be transformed? How is that renewed inside of them? And he came up with this idea of virtue again. We looked last week in First Peter, um, where he says to us, have your faith be supplemented by virtue. Don't just stop with your faith, but supplement it with virtue. Become a virtuous person. Um, And so we we looked, and to review just real quickly, here this morning, um, there are three parts to virtue, okay? Beginning with Aristotle, and again, worked out um, through the years by by Christians. Um, There are three kind of levels that virtue works on, and and how you and I have our character shaped by virtue. The first is you have to have a goal, or telos, okay? That's the Greek word for goal, or end, or purpose. You have to know where you're going, what, what the end of your path is going to be like. You have to know what it is that you are after, what it is that you're trying to achieve. And so for Aristotle, the goal was happiness, or, or he, he thought of it a little bit deeper than kind of how we use the word happiness, maybe human flourishing, a human being who's happy in his own skin, who's comfortable with who he or she is and can survive no matter what life brings their way. 
Um, and so you have to have that goal. And, and then knowing what the goal is, you start to think through what character traits or virtues will get me to that goal. And then allow me to flourish, to thrive when I'm there. What strengths of character, what type of person gets to that goal, gets to the end of that journey. And then knowing the goal and who gets there, you start to think through what can I do here and now and habits and patterns and disciplines that will shape me into that kind of person. So for Aristotle, there are these four cardinal virtues, courage, justice, prudence, temperance. And then to be a courageous person, Aristotle would say, do courageous things. Think through, is this courageous? Well, then do it and do it and do it. And over time, he says, you might wake up and be a courageous person. Virtue understands this idea that who you are, there's a cycle to behavior. Who you are will influence what you do. And then what you do, slowly but surely, influences who you are. It's a circle. It's a feedback loop. And the good news is it's not a vicious circle. You can break the cycle. And you do that with virtue by starting to put into practice different habits and different actions that slowly but surely reshape, give you a second nature. It's a lot like maybe learning an instrument or learning a hard piece on an instrument that you already play. The first couple times you do it, it seems unnatural to you. It's hard to get your fingers to move in those kind of motions. But over time, with lots of practice, you develop muscle memory and it becomes second nature to you. And someone might watch Trevor playing the guitar and going, that seems so easy. And you'd be assured it's not that easy. You'd be assured Trevor spent hours and hours and hours and hours practicing over and over and over again before you ever get near the point where someone looks at it and goes, that looks like it just comes natural to them. Well, somewhat, it comes second natural to them. It's been trained. And in a sense, you and I have moral muscles. And we train those muscles and then become that type of person um, that we uh, desire to become, okay? So, and again, we, we point out last, last week that often what we think of as heroic miracles are really good examples of virtue. So the plane that lands in the Hudson River, um, and this miracle of this pilot who's able in two or three minutes to do all these different steps to land that plane um, might be better traced to the years and years he spent practicing, the years and years he spent developing all the skills, the character traits that a good pilot needs. And in that one moment, he was able to do it almost as if it came naturally. Um, but virtue would say it, it came second naturally to him. It was the, in a sense, power of habits. It was the practice of disciplines that over time developed and shaped his character. So we began last week uh, to think through the first step, the first level here of virtue, which is what is the telos? What is the goal according to um, the Christian kind of framework that the scriptures provide us? We noted first that when we talk about virtue as Christians, we've always got to remember it's by God's grace. This is not something we're doing on our own. As if you and I one day could just decide to be better people, to look like Christ. It begins with, it's sustained by, and it ends with God's grace. This is not kind of a moral effort on our part. But it does, according to the scriptures, it does require, even God's grace, some effort on our behalf. The New Testament is full of language like this. Put on, put to death, make every effort, we saw last week, to supplement your faith with virtue. It does require some effort and some, some maybe hard work on our behalf. So we thought through what the telos was for the Christian framework. And, and the answer we came to last week after working through a couple passages is the telos for Christians, the goal where you and I are headed, if we really are Christians, is to be resurrected full humans. Bearing God's image, enjoying God, and reigning on his new heaven and new earth. To repeat 
to be resurrected full humans, bearing God's image, enjoying God, and reigning on his new heaven and his new earth. We notice that oftentimes in the Christian world, we have a hard time explaining and answering the why of Christian behavior. Why should you do the kind of things the scriptures call Christians to do? If the goal of the telos is simply to be forgiven and to have this disembodied state in heaven with no real task in front of you, then it's hard to answer that why. It's hard to really provide the motivation for the hard work that being a Christian sometimes takes. But if one day you and I will have a role to play in God's new creation, we'll be reigning, we'll have decisions to make, tasks to accomplish, responsibilities to fulfill, then perhaps we should start working now to be ready then. Perhaps morality, according to the scriptures, is always closely tied up with mission, with the sense that there's a task to be accomplished, both now and in the future. And this is the why. This is why you put in the hard work. This is why you diligently pursue supplementing faith with virtue. And how do we get this virtue again? It's this, this patterned daily discipline of habits. Small but wise and faithful choices. So we, we ended last week seeing what the telos was according to the scriptures. So we got that first level down and then wondering, if that's the goal, what type of person gets there? What are the character traits or the strengths of character that allow one to arrive at that goal and then flourish and thrive while they're there? Luckily, the scriptures will give us some help here. And so to that end, to answering that question, we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Again, a very famous passage read at weddings all over the world, um, but we will read it this morning and seek to work through it, all right? Chapter 13, verse 1, we read, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love... I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver myself, my body, to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and love is kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they'll cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, and I thought like a child, and I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. All right, again, a very... Very famous passage here, perhaps Paul's greatest kind of exposition on love. And what I want us to notice this morning is that love here in chapter 13 is pretty obviously a virtue. It's a character trait. It's a strength of character that's befitting of a person that Paul says will enter into the perfect, will enter into God's future. You'll notice that it doesn't, it's not really rules laid out here. It's not to be a loving person. Say three compliments a day, Okay. Give this amount of gifts a day. Open the door this amount of, of times during a day. You might, in a sense, see verse 4 through 7 as kind of some rules. So be patient, be kind, do not be envy, do not boast. Perhaps, though, it's better to see that as kind of rounding out the shape of this virtue. What this character strength looks like. 
where this virtue feels and looks and, and shapes life. It's, it's not necessarily these rules that you and I are to follow. We've noticed rules last week. We, we saw rules don't always necessarily do the job we need them to do when it comes to shaping us into who we need to be as Christians. We'll never have enough rules for all the situations that we encounter. I mean, I'll never be able to give one rule about love that will apply to everyone's life in here. And then rules, if you can get them and can't follow them, don't really touch the core of who you are as a person. They don't really transform you. They don't change your character. And you'll notice love is not, according to this passage, something that comes naturally to us. This is another option for thinking through how Christians should behave. Just do what comes naturally to you. The problem is what comes naturally to most of us is not good. It's not to be accepted. It's not to be baptized as Christian. It's to be put to death, according to the scriptures. Even perhaps if we've been given the Spirit. I mean, sometimes we, we struggle with this as Christians. If we're Christians, if the Spirit is dwelling inside of us, why do we not just automatically desire the things of God? Why are we not automatically transformed? The why is perhaps an interesting question, um, but the fact that we're not is, is a very clear scriptural thing and from experience. Um, you don't kind of automatically become godly. Um, you don't stumble into godliness, into virtue, into being an excellent type of person. It doesn't happen accidentally. And the, the person who thinks it will happen accidentally will live their entire life waiting for something to happen that's not coming. And so they'll be 85, 90 years old on their deathbed wondering why they're just as, as wicked of a person as they were when they met Christ. Because they were waiting for that one day where they're going to wake up and all of a sudden want to read their Bible and pray for four hours. And they were going to be this loving Mother Teresa type person. And it just never, never kind of came their way. I mean, you read through how he describes love here. And it seems almost the exact opposite of what comes naturally to us. Okay? I am naturally not patient, not kind. I'm, I'm pretty envious. I like to boast. I'm arrogant and I'm rude. I often insist on my own way. I'm very irritable. I'm very resentful. I love sometimes when people do wrong things. I don't bear all things. I don't believe all things. I don't hope all things. I don't endure all things. I mean, and so we, we read this passage at marriages, and it's almost like it's kind of damning sentence over our marriage for in five years to look at it and be like, how much of our relationship looks like this? None of it. It's, wow, strike, 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 right? Surely Paul's not looking at this church and going, just do what comes naturally to you, and it's going to look like this. I mean, we could go read earlier on in this letter and see what comes naturally to them. Sleeping with their mother-in-laws comes naturally to them. Bickering and fighting among the church comes naturally to them. Forming teams. I'm with Paul. I'm with Apollos. I'm with Jesus. I'm with Peter. comes naturally to them. This is a horrible, horrible church. Um, if you've never read through the letter of Corinthians. It's, I call it Church Gone Wild. All right? This is, this is the how not to do church in 1 Corinthians. I mean, you read there, There's this guy sleeping with his mother-in-law. What in the world? Hello? And then they're bragging about it. They're like really proud of this guy and this fact. And Paul's like, what are y'all doing? This is horrible, horrible stuff that you've gotten yourself into. Surely Paul's not saying, well, look at you guys go. Y'all are just doing awesome. It's not rules and it's not what comes naturally to you. It's, it's virtue. These are the character traits that you'll need. And the greatest perhaps to Paul is, is again, this sense of love. You've got three movements here in, in 1 Corinthians 13. The first he talks about in the first three verses all the things, all the skills, all the, the practices that are worthless if he doesn't have love. And it's kind, of, it's kind of heightened rhetoric here when you read these first three words. It says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but don't have love, I'm a gong. I'm a clanging cymbal. Uh, and so 
the Corinthian church had all these spiritual gifts among them. I mean, this really, and Paul's not denying this, these really dramatic expressions of the Holy Spirit. I mean, they're speaking in different languages, languages of, of men and of angels. And he says, if, if that's what you have, but you're not using it to build up the people around you, but instead to tear down the people around you, you're like one of those dancing monkeys, right? That just puts the gongs together over and over and over again, and we all want to turn you off. And it's worth nothing. I mean, you're just annoying. That's all you've got. Even with that dramatic expression of the Holy Spirit moving through you, says, if you're not using it to build up other people, if you're using it to tear them down or to build division, it's worthless. Get rid of it. You might as well not have it. And he, he goes on, he says, if I have prophetic powers, if I can receive a fresh word from God and deliver it to God's people, if I can understand mysteries and knowledge and think through all these deep things, so I have faith that moves a mountain, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. It's not worth anything. I don't think this is hyperbolic language. I don't think Paul's exaggerating. I think he's, he means this. It's all worth zero. You might as well not have it. In fact, it might not even be neutral. It might be a bad thing in your hands. We might all be better off if you didn't have this knowledge and you didn't have this prophetic power because you're using it to tear apart. That's people. This is worth nothing. If I give away all that I have, I deliver my body to be burned. But I don't have love. Paul says you wasted it. I'm sorry. It wasn't worth the doing. It was this bold move. I get it. Paul says it was kind of impressive. But you didn't get anything. It wasn't worth anything. You can't exchange that in the bank of God or anything worthwhile. You're talking about talking about, okay, this, this virtue for Paul, this care trait is, is so important. Uh, there's all these things that are worth this without it. Then he goes through again kind of the shape of it. It's not, it's not um, impatient. It's patient. It's kind. It isn't envy and it doesn't boast. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. Kind of this, I mean, you, you think through what, what a community would look like if they had these characteristics. What a group of people would look like, how it would function if they could live like this. It would be a beautiful, beautiful thing. This is one of those things that, that you would imagine perhaps couldn't exist, a, a person like this or a community like this, until you start to taste it, until you start to experience it. And you kind of go, wow, I mean, what, what, a, what a beautiful thing this, this really is. What a, what, a, what a God thing that we have here. This is the shape of the virtue. And then in, in verse 8 in this third movement, here's where the virtue language starts to heighten, okay? Here's where, where we want to dwell for, for just a second. He says this, verse 8, love never ends. This, to Paul, is why love is such an important character trait. Why it's such an important virtue? Because it will last for all of eternity. He says these other things that you've got, these spiritual gifts, knowledge, prophetic power, speaking in tongues, those are things that, good, that while they're good right now, you will eventually drop. And you don't get to carry them forward with you into the future, into God's future. As important as they are, perhaps you should invest and spend time and energy in other things that you'll be able to keep with you past the grave into God's future that he's building. It's the permanence of love that makes it so important for Paul and makes it so worthwhile to start developing in ourselves right now. He says, for prophecies they'll pass, for tongues they'll cease, for knowledge they'll pass as well. We know in part and we prophesy in part. But when, check this out in verse 10, what does he say? But when the what comes? When the perfect comes, this is the Greek word telos. We've met this word before. This is virtue language. When the goal is here, often in your, your English Bibles, when you see the word perfect, it's this Greek word telos. And often, perhaps there's a better way to translate it other than perfect. It can't mean perfect, but we think of perfect in kind of static 
philosophical terms, just with the best qualities that could ever exist um, for this object, whatever it is. Um, perhaps a better way to translate it is goal or completion or maturity. Think through how you would describe perfect when talking about a child. That might be the kind of perfect we, we need to be thinking about here. So when I was 13, my brother was born, and he was a little premature baby, a little tiny kid. And I used to uh, lay down on our couch in our living room, and he'd just kind of like relax on my chest, and we'd both just take naps. He'd just be sitting on my chest, I'd be sitting on my couch. I was just smitten by this little kid. Uh, and, and all these good memories from our time together. And I can remember holding him in the hospital. He stayed in the hospital for, I think, 18 days uh, because he wasn't eating. He didn't have the muscle to, to swallow the, the milk. Real premature. And I remember holding him and, and looking down at him and saying, He's perfect. He's perfect. But, it, but if you look at it from another angle, I mean, he's obviously not perfect at all, right? At this stage in his life, he can't even, like, swallow food. You kind of have to shove that stuff down his throat uh, and hope that it, like, digests in his body. For the next year or two, I mean, he can't go to the bathroom by himself. He can't feed himself. He can't talk. He can't earn money for the family. He's just kind of this, he's one big drain on everybody, <laughs> emotionally, financially. <laughs> and, I mean, if he, if he stayed like that, right, I mean, that wouldn't be a desirable thing. But when you use the word perfect in that sense, we use it with this sense that there's a goal or a mature expression of who he is that he's able to reach. Perfect in the sense of potential. He's perfect in that he has all the tools he needs to one day be a complete, mature human being. And I'm excited about watching him hopefully progress towards that. Paul says, when the telos comes, when the perfect comes, when the resurrection happens, when the new heavens and earth are here, when we're enjoying God and reigning on the new creation, the partial passed away, and with it, all of these things that we don't get to carry with us into eternity. He says, look, you can spend time working on those skills, but they're not going to ultimately be eternally helpful for you. Those kind of characters aren't important in God's new creation. Instead, you can spend time now investing in skills that you will need when you get there. So I could, I could be um, figuring out as an 18-year-old that I'm going to need public speaking skills, and I could spend six hours a day learning how to build shoes, and learning how to make molds and do shoelaces and all these type of things. And someone might come along and go, what are, what are you trying to do with your life? And I'm say, well, I want to be a pastor. I want to speak publicly. And they're going to say, well, why are you working on shoes? <laughs> Interesting, perhaps. Maybe useful. But, but this is not a skill that you're going to need. This is not a skill that's going to stay with you for your true vocation, your true mission. Paul says, you, you put these things away. You're going to have to let them go one day. Perhaps there are better character traits, virtues, to begin working on. Love is one of them. He uses this metaphor, right, in verse 11, of growing up, of maturing. He says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. And when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. One of the biggest insults you can probably give to a male, be a man, right? Grow up. Be a man. You're acting like a little boy. You, you don't have love. I mean, you're, you're like a child. You've got a long way to go to being the fully developed, mature, virtuous person that God has created and, according to Romans 8, predestined you to be. And so then he gives us, in verse 13, three virtues, three character traits. Now faith, hope, and love abide or remain or will last forever or will be the type of character present when the perfect is here. These three, but the greatest of these is love. We call these three, faith, hope, and love, the theological virtues. These are the character traits. This is the type of person who gets to God's telos and who thrives when they're there. 
It's a faith person, a hope person, a love person. And we might wonder, and we'll wonder, how faith and hope last. We, we understand love lasts, and there are a couple classic hymns that kind of imply faith and hope will pass away and love will stay forever, which is the exact opposite of Paul's point here. Faith, hope, and love abide. And love for sure is the greatest here, but all three of these are lasting into God's new creation. They're theological virtues. They're the kind of character traits that get us to the goal and help us thrive and flourish while we're there. Notice they're not just rules to follow. He doesn't say, do this and do this, and then you'll be faith. You'll, you'll be a faith person. You'll be characterized by faith. And do this and do this, and then you'll be characterized by hope. And do this and do this, and be characterized by love. These are just three kind of robust character traits. And notice these aren't what come naturally to us. He doesn't say, just kind of stumble around and do what happens. Do what just kind of comes right off the bat for you. He says, no, 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 think through. The perfect's coming. It's on its way. And this is the type of character that will last, that will sustain you there, that will get you to that goal and perhaps beyond. You could say that faith, hope, and love aren't so much our duty as our destiny. This is where we're headed. And the goal would be to think through what we can do now in the present that will shape, form our character with faith and with hope and with love. I think a quick survey of the the New Testament shows how important these kind of three virtues are in a healthy, developing Christian community. If you were to flip to Colossians 1 with me, real quick. Colossians chapter 1, a little bit to your right. We'll pick it up in, in verse 3. This is Paul talking again to a young church. And he writes this, Colossians chapter 1 verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, faith, hope, and love. As he's praising this church, he's saying we thank God because we're seeing the faith and the hope and the love that's starting to develop among you. If we were to flip over to the right once again to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2, Paul says this, We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and the labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting to think through. Both of the two passages we just read are introductions where Paul's praising the Christian community. It seems like faith, hope, and love are three of the terms that he reaches for naturally when he wants to say to somebody, good job. You're looking more and more like Christians. You're developing and maturing more and more into fully Christian people and communities. You've heard of and we've seen and we're witnessing and we're experiencing your faith and your hope and your love. If we were to flip a couple chapters in 1 Thessalonians to chapter 5, we would watch these three themes reemerge in chapter 5 in an interesting context. <clears throat> chapter 5, verse 1. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need uh, to have me write anything to you. For you yourselves are fully aware, verse 2, that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love. And for our helmet, the hope of salvation. 
For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another, build one another up, just as you are doing. This is we're destined, our goal is for salvation through Christ. And so, let's live as people in the light. Let's live as people as part of the new day that God has and is creating through his Son. The image here, we could maybe transport in uh, of jet lag, okay? And so you leave somewhere where it's morning, and you get to another country, perhaps overseas, and it's still night there, but your body knows it's morning. The day's already started, but you have to wait, and your body has to adjust as the people around you realize that the day has started, and as they come to realize that the day has started as well. He's saying here, the day has started, the dawn has come with the resurrection of Christ, Christ has come, the kingdom has drawn near, so now act like kingdom people as we wait for the day to fully dawn on us. Faith, hope, and love. In your worship guides, you'll see there's a quote here by N.T. Wright. I want to call your attention to it. He says this, Faith, hope, and love form, for Paul, the fundamental character of the person who is anticipating in the present by patient and careful moral discipline the goal of genuine humanity which is set before us. We need to develop consciously and deliberately the habits of heart, mind, soul, and strength that will sustain this life of faith and hope and love. In other words, says Wright, we need to practice the specifically Christian form of virtue. And the three theological virtues that we get from the scriptures, the strengths of character that will last forever, that will arrive us, get us to the goal, and help us to flourish and thrive and be successful when we're there, our faith, hope, and love. And so this morning we will uh, talk about faith, the virtue of faith. Next week we'll do hope. The week after that we will do love, okay? Now we might define faith like this. The settled, unwavering trust in the triune God revealed to us in Jesus and through his spirit. To repeat that the settled, unwavering trust in the triune God whom we have come to know in Jesus and through the spirit. Faith is more than just a belief in certain facts, than a mere intellectual assent. It's the sustaining trust. Faith is built around the object that it has. It's a personal, relational trust where the triune God has revealed himself and has drawn near to us. Christian faith specifically is wrapped in and around the revelation historically that God has done in creation, in history. How he has revealed himself, the acts that he has um, participated in among us, in front of us. His salvation acts. And faith is more than a, a one-time mental kind of agreement. It's the sustaining thing. It's this enduring thing. Something that lasts with us. I'll read for you a quote from C.S. Lewis. He says this about faith. Faith seems to be used by Christians in two senses or on two levels. In the first sense, it means simply to believe. To accept or regard as true the doctrines of Christianity. And that's fairly simple. But what does puzzle, what puzzles people, puzzles people, or at least used to puzzle me, Lewis says, is the fact that Christians regard faith in this sense as a virtue. I used to ask, how on earth could it be in virtue? What's there to be moral or immoral about believing or not believing a set of statements? What I didn't see then, and a good many people do not still see, is this. I was assuming that if the human mind once accepts a thing as true, it will automatically go on accepting that thing as true until some real reason for reconsidering it comes up. In fact, I was assuming that the human mind is completely ruled by reason. But that's not so. He goes on to say, Faith in the sense of which I am here using the word is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. 
for moods will change whatever view your reason takes. I know that by experience. Now that I'm a Christian, I do have moods in which Christianity looks very improbable to me. But when I was an atheist, I also had moods where Christianity looked terribly probable. This rebellion of your moods against your real self is going to come no matter what decision you come upon. That's why faith is a necessary virtue. Unless you teach your moods where they get off, you can never be a sound Christian nor even a sound atheist, but just a creature dithering to and fro with its beliefs really dependent on the weather and the state of its digestion. Consequently, he says, one must train the habits of faith. One must develop within themselves habits and patterns and disciplines which will form their character into someone who believes and trusts in the triune God. Now, with virtue comes vice, okay? Vice, we haven't touched on yet. This would be the opposite of virtue. And it works in a similar but opposite direction. These are the things, the character traits and the practices that will lock you in to the kind of person who doesn't reach the goal and doesn't thrive once there. Where we get the, the term vice grip, right? You're locked in, you're trapped in. And this is where most of us find ourselves when we meet Christ. We have all these vices that we've spent years and years and years developing. And which at times that conversion, God graciously releases us from. And other times, continue on into our new life. And we must practice the virtues for them. When it, each virtue has kind of vices that go along with it, that surround it. I think for faith, we could develop perhaps two different vices. Uh, and I think both of these are experienced in common in our kind of cultural context of Christianity. Uh, and, and perhaps... They're vices in the sense that they come naturally to us. They're what happens when we try to develop faith without thinking through it, without developing wise but perhaps hard moral practices. The first vice we would say is this. It would be ascent and repetition of vapid, shallow, therapeutic platitudes. Um, the idea here is that what we, we develop as faith are really just these these therapeutic statements that you could substitute anything in or out for, but really just kind of affirm our emotional well-being. Um, and so sometimes Christians never get past this as the content of their faith. Jesus loves me. Jesus died for me. Jesus will never leave me. And those are all good and true. I mean, there's nothing wrong with any of those statements. But when that's where your, your faith stops, I mean, if that's the full, robust content of what your faith is, you start to wonder whether you're not just kind of repeating certain platitudes to you. Whether, would it really change if you substitute something else in for Jesus? My husband will never leave me. My husband loves me. My husband would die for me. Whether you're really just looking for some kind of emotional foundation to be able to live your life and get through the ups and the downs. Sometimes the, the vice of faith is that we never really develop it. We stick with these first little therapeutic platitudes that come easily to us. And I think that's, that's evident in kind of the, some of the Jesus is my boyfriend culture of churches. Um, and you can see this in worship songs as well, right? There's a worship song called How He Loves, um, which I like. I'm a fan of the, the worship song. The, the lyrics are pretty simple. It's... How he loves us, oh, how he loves us, he loves us so, oh, how he loves us, how he loves us, oh, he loves us so, he loves us, how he loves us, oh, he loves us so. I think, I mean, you can kind of memorize it pretty quickly and kind of sing it. And I like the song. And, and again, there's nothing wrong with the phrase. Yes, he loves us. Oh, how he loves us so. Right? On and on and on and on again. Um, but there seems to be the sense when you're in a group of 
perhaps I'm at a youth retreat with some kids that I know, and I know that they are horrible human beings. <laughs> Said with a smirk, but also in reality. They, they have no evidence of Christ's work in their life, no true um, desire for repentance or for following after him. They've been Christians for years and years and years and years with actually no actual, like, real Christian stuff in their life. Um, and you get the sense that it's kind of just this repeating a phrase to yourself until, like, hopefully you kind of believe it and forget about the reality of your life for a second. Like a, a prisoner in a cell who closes his eyes and covers up his ears and just says, I'm at a beach, I'm at a beach, I'm at a beach, I'm at a beach, I'm at a beach. And it's kind of amusing. You want him to open up and say, no matter how much you repeat it, this is the life that's around you right now. Not that God wouldn't love those children. Just that, I mean, there's really no evidence in their life that he, he has loved them and changed them and come true closely into their life. If you read Romans 1, I think you might say that's what we call God's wrath. And he lets you kind of do whatever you want to do, despite the emotional frenzy that you kind of work yourself up into. There's nothing wrong with realizing that he loves you, that he died for you, that he'll never leave you nor forsake you. But if that's where your faith stops, then perhaps there is a problem. I've seen and will continue to see that kind of faith drop out on people very quickly. The bottom drops on that fast and hard. And it can be hard to recover from. The second vice we could perhaps develop of faith would be really just this baptizing of modern Western American humanism. Um, where despite the language we use, it's really apparent to anyone with a brain that who we really trust is ourselves. We trust our abilities, we trust our resources, we trust our money, we trust our work ethic. Okay, um, Again, while we can... Use a language of trust. We trust in God. We have faith in God. When we really trust the nine digits in our bank account, right? I mean, that's where the, the rubber really meets the road for us. And this is one of the trappings of wealth. I mean, this is one of the things that wealth produces. It's a challenge in people's life. As much as I can say, so I'm probably the wealthiest person in the room right now. So I'll use myself as an example um, for you poor people. As much as I can say, I trust God to provide me lunch today. My faith is in God that, that I'm going to be able to eat a nutritious meal today. As much as I can even pray that, well, before I eat, right? Or after I eat if I forgot. Or tomorrow. Like, sometimes I prograde prayers for meals, okay? Do you remember yesterday you didn't pray at all? Just be like, thanks for breakfast and for lunch and for dinner. And God works like that, so. As much as I can use that language, right? I mean, I trust myself for lunch. Got a credit card. If I want a really, really nice lunch today, I'll, I'll go get a really, really nice lunch. If I want just an average lunch, I can pull up get an average lunch. I can go to my apartment and go to the cabinet stocked with all kinds of different food. Kind of choose whatever I'm kind of feeling like in the mood for. Make up something tasty, I eat, put it in the microwave, <laughs> and eat it. But someone who, perhaps one of my brothers and sisters in, in Africa, who I met a couple summers ago, who actually has no plan for food today for lunch. It's not there. They don't know how they're going to get it. They don't have the money to get it. Who prays to God, Lord, would you please provide me a meal today? Notice what's happening here. Again, this is not neither necessarily good or bad. We're not bad because we're rich. Again, because I'm much richer than you are. doesn't mean I'm a worse person than you. But it means when it comes to food, I don't have to exercise the muscle of faith as much as my brother or sister in Kenya does. That's like me lifting like a two and a half pound dumbbell. Going, look at me go. Really working hard here. 
my muscle's not going to grow. It's not going to develop as much as the person next to me lifting 50 pounds. Because they're actually exercising that muscle of faith. Again, this is one of the, just the, the challenges that wealth presents. Right? Jesus might say it's, it's impossible for a wealthy man to get into heaven. I mean, he, he supplements that with what's impossible for, for man is possible for God. But he, he, he does notice this. It's harder for wealthy people to, to give up their trust in themselves. And I think sometimes, despite the language we use, what we really got is just this baptized trust in ourselves, in our own resources, and in our own abilities. But over and above both of these, Paul says the character of a person who will last, who will enter into the perfect, is someone who has faith, this unsettled, or settled, unwavering trust in the triune God. So let's suggest, as we close this morning, four practices or disciplines of faith. Four things perhaps we could start to do now to exercise our faith muscle. That one day we would wake up and someone might look at us and say, it looks like they just naturally have faith. And we can kind of chuckle amongst ourselves and say, well, we worked at it and we took some time and it took some reps. But slowly but surely we've been shaped into someone who has faith, okay? The first one is this. And surely there are more than four. Surely there are dozens that you could add in here and perhaps it would be a good conversation to have with your loved one or with your family or with your friends um, to think through what are some of the disciplines, habits, practices that we could do toward being people of faith. The first, though, that I'll suggest out of these four is scripture. Scripture and study. Reading the scripture, studying the scripture, studying theology. Surely a rule won't help us here. I can't say, if you want to be someone who has faith, read the Bible for one hour every morning. This is not going to be able to apply to all of us here. It's not going to be able to work like that for all of us. And surely I can't say, if you want to be a person who has faith, just wake up and see what you feel like doing. I can take a, a pretty good guess here. Most of us aren't going to read the Bible. right? We've got busy lives. We've got things to do. At times, the Bible can be very, very confusing and very unrewarding for people who, who really try to dig through it. But virtue comes in and says, if you want to be the kind of person who, when they're 80 years old, other people look at them and go, wow, they really know their scriptures. And they've really been formed by the scriptures. Virtue says, what you need to do Tomorrow is read your Bible. And Tuesday, read your Bible. And Wednesday, read your Bible. And Thursday, when you really don't feel like it, read your Bible. Start the habit, start the practice, start the discipline. And slowly but surely, you'll be someone who, who reads their Bible. Now, with all the Christian virtues, community is an important aspect. This is one of the ways in which it departs from Aristotle's idea of virtue, where it's this lone rager individual who's kind of doing it themselves as a moral agent. In, in the Christian virtues, it takes a team. It takes a village. You learn with each other, amongst each other. In fact, the goal is to be in love relationship with God and with other people. Obviously, you can develop that by yourself. The only way to, to get better at reading your Bible is to read your Bible. And one of the best ways to learn how to read your Bible is with other people who read their Bibles. So you need a plan. You can't expect it to always be there emotionally. To always want to do these kind of things. But this, this attacks that, that first vice, right? Of not having any content to your faith. You really need to dig into and explore and be mentally challenged and stimulated with who God is. With what he's done in creation. What he's continuing to do. What he will do in the future. This is an important thing for us to do. Now, the second discipline I might suggest is related but opposite. Um, would be evangelism. If you take in, you've got to... to to give out. These are one and the same. Okay, You've got to share what you know, what you've learned, your faith, in some sense or fashion. 
not necessarily teaching or preaching, but possibly, but, but maybe just sharing with friends or family. Maybe just conversations about spiritual things, about the gospel. Not necessarily handing out tracts to town center, okay, on Saturday night, but perhaps over coffee saying, what can I, can I pray for you about? Let me tell you about this. I was reading this the other day, and it's really interesting to me. Do you have any thoughts on this? Can we, can we talk about this? You need to stretch that muscle. If you don't, what happens is it's like the guy goes to the gym and works out one arm and not the other, right? And they're kind of lopsided. And one's just really big, and the other one's kind of puny. Like, what happened? Well, he didn't, he didn't exercise very wisely. You've got to exercise taking in and then also, also giving out here. The third practice that I might suggest um, would be different from the verse 2. It would be fasting. Okay? This is a discipline, a practice that Christians have done since the very beginning. Fasting, a period of time where you give up eating food in order to seek and know Christ at a deeper, more real level. It's a discipline, it's a practice that reinforces on every level that as a Christian, we trust God and rely on Him more than we rely on food, on the basic building block of life. Like the psalmist said, even though my heart would fail me, my trust is in, my steadfast, in the steadfast love of my Lord. Ultimately, my trust, my need is not for my body to keep working, for my heart to keep beating, for my brain to keep firing. It's for God to continue to take care of me, to provide for me, to watch over me. And again, fasting, I think on every level, mentally and even physically, reinforces that into us, shapes us. It's a, it's a way to exercise that muscle. Again, it doesn't come naturally to us. No one kind of wakes up unless... You know, you're on some kind of extreme diet and says, I'm not going to eat today. And there's not a rule that you can lay down. I can't say, okay, all of us from 8 to 12, every Tuesday for the rest of our lives are not going to eat. And we'll be faith people. That's not how it works. But we can think through what patterns and habits and disciplines that we can practice on our own as families, as small group communities. Um, and then the, the fourth one that I would suggest this morning, again, well more than four, but the fourth one would be Sabbath. The practice and art of taking a break, of rest. Whatever that might look like, perhaps one day out of seven, according to the biblical model. Again, a practice that reinforces on every level the idea that you and I need and trust in God more than we need and trust in ourselves, in our abilities, in our resources. More than I need to make money, I need to know the Lord. And more than I need to put out fires that I'm aware of, I need the Lord. And more than I need to be able to flex my resources and my abilities and to be able to produce and manufacture, I need a triune God who's been revealed in Jesus and given through the Spirit. It's a paradox. I mean, how do you get to be a person who reads their Bible? You read your Bible. How do you get to be a person who has faith? Well, you start to exercise in very disciplined and thoughtful ways the muscles and habits of faith. And perhaps one day we'll wake up and we'll be people who, who others look at and go, hey, that's a, that's a faith-characterized person. How did they get there? And we'll say, well, it's because of God's grace revealed to us. The community we were finding ourselves in and the habits that we, we started to pick up as we start to follow Christ and be reshaped into his image. And so we have faith, hope, and love. Perhaps this week we, we think through, both as individuals and as communities, what are the practices and the habits we can start to build into our lives that will shape our character, 
And there's someone who has faith. And as Paul says, when the perfect comes, faith gets to last, gets to remain. And we'll be that much more prepared to enjoy God's new creation, to flourish there. Let's pray together. Father, we, we love you. And we thank you for the scriptures that you've given us. We thank you for the blessings you've poured down uh, in our lives. We ask that we would use those blessings wisely. Uh, we ask that we would use our resources wisely, our time wisely. Um, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the love that you've shown us. Uh, we thank you for the salvation that you have given us. We thank you for the future you've placed out in front of us. And as a response to that, Father, we ask that you would help us follow you wisely. You would help us mature, grow up, that we would put away childish things and grow into fully functioning, contributing members of God's society, people of God, the sons and daughters of God, Father. That we'd find ourselves more and more reflecting your image and more and more coming to enjoy you and know you more. Your grace, in a sense, rewards itself. Because the more it's poured out into our life, the more we can enjoy it and recognize it. And we ask that you would do that work in our lives. It's in your son's name that all of God's people prayed. Amen. Amen.